Welcome to The Gaslighting Effect. I'm Angela, writer, teacher, cult survivor. After decades of being silenced, I'm finally finding my voice. Today's topic is enmeshment and how enmeshed relationships and enmeshed family systems can really be destructive for a person's ability to form healthy personal boundaries and identity. I'm going to tell a story. Let's say you have a little boy, his name's Timmy, and he plays baseball, and he's a good pitcher, and he's a good hitter, but he's not playing baseball because he loves baseball. He's playing baseball because his father wanted to be a professional baseball player and didn't quite make it. And he really wants that for his son. So his father comes to the games and he cheers him on loudly. And then anytime the ref makes a call he doesn't like that hurts the team or hurts his son, he marches down and yells in the ref's face and makes a big deal. My son made that base. That should have been a point. How dare you say my son didn't make it? He's yelling in this guy's face, and his son, well, it's all his son knows, but do you think he's doing that for Timmy? Or do you think he's doing that for himself? We've all heard the stories about stage moms, and parents who live through their children. And we will be fooling ourselves if we believe that that was for the children. It's not. So I'm thinking of Timmy now. Do you think that Timmy would feel strong enough to go to his dad and say, Dad, I really don't like it when you yell at the refs at my game. Could you not do that anymore? What do you think would happen if Timmy went to his dad and said that? Well, if Timmy's dad were really a good dad who was was listening to his son's feelings, he would probably hear him. But the fact that his dad is yelling at the ref in the first place and making Timmy's baseball about him is an indication probably it wouldn't go well. Timmy's dad is over-invested in Timmy. Now, when we say that a parent is overinvested in the child, we don't mean that he's compassionate and sympathetic and empathetic with the child, so much as it means the parent thinks that they know better, they are invested in that child, doing one thing well or believing one thing, like a religion. Or doing one thing when they grow up. Like, we were all doctors, you're going to be a doctor. We all played chess, you're going to play chess. So, overinvestment is is easy for parents to do. Lots of parents do it. But it's not good for kids. And it's one thing that causes enmeshment. We first look at enmeshment... And the lack of boundaries that it results in, it looks like it's about closeness. 
you know, that father is really close to that son, that mother is really close to that daughter, that whole family, they all talk the same, they all have the same mannerisms, they have one mind and they think about everything the same and it feels like it's about closeness. But it's not really about closeness at all. It's about control. So I'm a teacher and I have seen this from the outside. I can tell you that there have been times where a child in my class has done something that's completely unacceptable. The parent wasn't there in the class to see it, but the child has behaved in a way that has hurt another child, or that is cruel, or that is just clearly wrong. And then they will go home and they will tell their parent what happened, but the story will be twisted to make them look like the victim. And then instead of the parent coming in and asking for the story and looking at it from both sides, the over-invested parent will come in, they'll storm into the school. How dare you say this to my child? How dare you do this? And they're not listening to anything you say. They're not listening to the actual story. And they think they're being this great, awesome parent. When in actuality, they're not doing their child any favors because what, we're, what they're teaching the child is that they can get what they want through the parent. The parent is going to do the work for them. It's another way of being over-invested. And as a parent, I've done this myself. Now, there are situations where it's appropriate. You know, if your child is actually legitimately being bullied. My son at one point was having rocks thrown at him by other kids. I I think that that's okay. You should be marching up to the school for that. There's no situation where it's okay for other children to be throwing rocks at the back of your son's head. Hey, but I've been in situations also where I have marched into the school all angry because he didn't get an extension for a deadline. When really, it would have been better if I had told my son, this is your responsibility. You get the work in on time. If you want an extension, you go to the teacher and you ask. We have a word for that that's called self-advocacy. Self-advocacy is sort of an antidote to parent enmeshment. Uh, Growing up, I was encouraged to self-advocate in exactly two areas, my learning and my religion. I was taught to self-advocate in my learning because I have a learning disability and the only way that I could get the help that I needed was to go up to the teachers myself and say, hey, I need a little extra time on this test or I need you know, I need a certain kind of paper, um, or, you know, I I had to ask for the things that I needed in order to succeed. So in this respect, in the area of learning, my parents did a good job. They did. But in the area of religion, the only self-advocacy that I was allowed to take was in advocating for the religion. I wasn't allowed to question the religion. 
But it was good in that I was able to be different from my peers, you know. I grew up on the East Coast. Not everybody was Mormon. So the self-advocacy was all about, you guys are spreading anti-Mormon lies. You don't understand. You need to be tolerant. And looking back at probably, since I wasn't actually allowed to read anything that wasn't put out by the church, I don't know if that's the best example of self-advocacy, but I was standing up for myself. So in that respect, I will put that on there. But all in all, my family sort of stands as a model for what the enmeshed family looks like. Because my mother very much controls the mood in the home. You can't be happy if she's in a bad mood. You're not allowed. You, we catch her feelings like a person catches the common cold. Except faster. Doesn't take a couple days. <laughs> you look at her and you know you're not allowed to be happy. <laughs> and my dad is the same way. His moods are controlled by her moods and how she feels. And if you are to be happy when she's not happy, then she'll punish you for it. Probably she'll start giving you the silent treatment. Let me tell you how I feel about the silent treatment. My parents, my mother in particular, can yell. She has a great yelling voice and it can be scary. She did that a lot when I was little. So much that I don't even remember it anymore because I blocked it out. But the one thing she did that I always remember is giving us the silent treatment because that hurt. That hurt like hell. I wouldn't even know what I had done wrong. All I would know is she wasn't making eye contact. She wasn't talking to me. She was sulking in the corner. I would approach her and she would make it, she would sigh, (sighs) you know. She would sigh, like clearly I'd done some terrible thing and I didn't know what it was and I was expected to read her mind, okay? That's not healthy. We're not supposed to have to read people's minds. In the fundamentalist Mormon church, the FLDS church, they have a word for this. It's called keeping sweet. And what it means is that if you've done something the parent doesn't like, they basically just completely ignore you until you figure it out. You figure it out. They don't ever tell you. And then for me, once I figured it out, and this is also part of keeping sweet, you had to grovel and you had to make it up to the person that you had hurt So the silent treatment was very much accepted in the Mormon home I grew up in. And just to be clear, my parents were not polygamists. They weren't. But that's where this concept comes from. It comes from polygamy. And my ancestors were polygamists. So even though we're not polygamists, we still do some of the same things that they did. And that's one of them, this keeping sweet concept. And it's very damaging because you have to read your parents' mind and then you have to grovel and you have to be ashamed. 
in order to get back into their good graces. And this was part of our family being enmeshed was the need to do this. I'll give you an example. When I was a teenager, as is the case with a lot of teenagers, uh, I wanted to quit playing the viola. I was in middle school. You know, that's an age when a lot of kids don't want to play the instrument they started. They play for a couple of years and then they're like, eh, I don't want to play anymore. You have to practice to get better, you know. So I got to that stage and my parents had told me that I could quit at any time. That's what they told me and I believed them. So I go to my dad and I'm like, hey, dad, I'm not really feeling viola anymore and you said that I could quit at any time, so could I just stop? Is that okay? And he sort of nodded, and I thought that meant that I could stop. But then, in the few days following, my mother stopped talking to me. She was walking around the house, sighing, not making eye contact, in the same room, and she's pretending like I'm not there. She's sitting in her chair and opening her magazine and reading, and I'm right in front of her. Nothing. Mom, what's wrong? No response. Mom, what, what, what's happening? No response. Finally, because I wasn't figuring it out, my parents were like, Angela, we need to meet with you. We need to have a meeting. And I was like, okay, am I in trouble? What's going on? So we all sit down and my dad starts telling me that I am ungrateful because they are paying for lessons for me and that's a big expense, that's a big deal. And they rented a viola for me and that's an expense and that's a big deal. And they don't feel like I play well enough yet to make the decision to quit lessons and they were very shaming about it and to be clear I'm happy that they made me keep playing in that I really you know I was a teenager and and now that I've been playing for years I'm really happy that I play the viola and so I I don't blame them for wanting me to keep playing I actually think there's nothing wrong with that and that was a good call for them but why did they tell me in the first place that I could quit at any time if that was not true? Why would, you tell, why would you tell your child that? And then when they ask to quit, give them the silent treatment, expect them to figure it out on their own, call a meeting, call them ungrateful, shame them, make them feel like crap. Because you've asked to do something that they said you could do at any time. That makes zero sense. Unless you grew up in an enmeshed family system where you're expected to read their mind even though they're not telling you what's in their mind. And they, and they expect you to know what they're feeling even though they're not telling you. Okay. So I kept playing the viola and I'm happy about that. But not super happy about the method that they used to keep me going. Um, when you grow up in an enmeshed family system, the mind reading, the catching of the emotions, 
um, and the expectation to carry on their dreams and their wishes and their belief systems are just natural. They're just all there. The other thing that's very natural are the family roles. So there's this thing called the looking glass self where we determine who we are by how other people tell us that we are. Um, if lots of pe- people tell you you're beautiful, you're going to think you're beautiful. If lots of people tell you you're intelligent, you're going to think you're intelligent, right? Well, I went through this very confused time in my life that lasted about 35 years. Um, where I didn't know who I was. And a big part of why I didn't know who I was is because the people in my family told me one thing about who I was and the people outside my family told me something that was completely opposite. So my mother made a big deal out of how I was loud. She would always tell this story about when I was a toddler, uh, a two-year-old, that I had the loudest voice and that I used my voice as a weapon. Well, first of all, what toddler doesn't do that? But secondly, um, she's always made a big deal out of it and she still talks about it. And, and she would say, that's just who you are. You're loud. Okay. Well, and I would go to school and as mentioned, I have a learning disability. So I got tested about every three years. My parents never just continued services because they agreed. They just, they had them retest me every three years. So I got really good at taking tests And they would have the teachers fill out these questionnaires about how hard I worked and how well I was learning and what my personality was like. And I have copies of all of this. And you know what every single one of my teachers said about me? She's so quiet. She's so soft-spoken. So here I have my parents and my mother in particular talking to me all the time about how loud I am and how I use my voice as a weapon. And then I have my teachers And my peers saying, Angela is so quiet. She's so soft-spoken. Well, which one was I to believe? And then my mother would talk about how I was an extrovert. How every time we went someplace like the beach or on vacation, I would go up to people and I would talk to them. That was proof that I was an extrovert. But then on the forms that my teachers filled out for my tests every three years... All of them consistently were saying, Angela keeps to herself. Angela's really shy. So again, completely opposite assessment of the person that I was. My mother liked to call me a jack of all trades and a master of none. And if I sound like I'm tearing up a little bit, it's because I'm tearing up a little bit because that really hurt. It's normal for teenagers and children to explore. It's normal for teenagers and children to want to try lots of different things, to want to try music and art and dance and storytelling and computers and all this stuff is normal. But I was constantly told that I was a jack of all trades and a master of none and I should just settle on one thing and criticized for being a quitter. 
because I couldn't stick to one thing. That's what my mother was constantly, constantly telling me. But then when my teachers were filling out all the forms every three years, you know what they consistently put as one of my character traits? Angela's a hard worker. She's really studious. So how do you reconcile that? Am I a quitter or am I studious and a hard worker because you can't be both? And the last thing that my mother often told me that I was, and it was constant, she would go off about how I was stubborn and strong-willed. Where my teachers would talk about how cooperative I was. So I went through this developmental stage not knowing who I was because what I was hearing at home was absolutely completely opposite from what I was hearing at school. So my looking glass self-concept was just all over the place, didn't know who I was. And it took me a long time in my 30s before I learned about splitting. Splitting is where a parent takes their bad traits and they take their good traits and they're unable to conceptualize them together. So they'll project their bad traits onto one child and they'll project their good traits onto another. So in case you don't know what projecting is, that's when a parent, um, an example, that's where a parent doesn't see that they're accusing someone else that they're guilty of. So let's say that I am in my room reading the newspaper and my daughter comes in and wants my time and I accuse her of, I, and let's say she has a book in her hand and I accuse her of reading too much because she wants to talk about the book. Oh, you're too into your book and you're too into reading. Why do I have to be a part of that? But in actuality, I'm the one who doesn't want to talk to her because I'm sitting in my room reading a newspaper. It's not her who has a problem with reading too much and not paying attention to other people. It's me who has a problem with reading too much and shutting other people out. But I'm projecting that onto her. So that would be an example. So when a person projects, they are unaware that they have a certain character trait and they're putting it onto someone else. So my mother and father do a lot of splitting. They take their good and their bad character traits and they put the good character traits onto the golden children in the family and they put the bad character traits onto the scapegoat or scapegoats. I was one of the scapegoats. So of course... When I look back, I can see my mother, when she got angry, she was very loud. She screamed. That's her. She's describing herself when she says that I'm loud. And even though my mother calls herself an introvert, she craves closeness. She craves friendship. She craves close bonds. So her calling me an extrovert and talking about how I was always talking to people, again, 
that's her. And this thing about being a jack of all trades and a master of none, let's talk about my mother for a moment, okay? She went to college, which is great. It's great to go to college, but she had like two majors and then she went to get a master's degree and couldn't decide what to what to make her concentration and then she dropped out before she got her master's and moved across the country and started working for the FBI as a secretary and that's where she met my dad and they got married jack of all trades master of none and she loves hobbies she has so many hobbies she gardens she writes she reads she sews on occasion she cooks And so often she'll start projects and she won't finish them. Jack of all trades, master of none. Why did she say that about me? Because it was true about her. And she was projecting that onto me. I was the scapegoat and she was splitting and she was putting those traits onto me as her child. Strong-willed, oh my God. What parent refuses to talk to their child because they've asked to stop playing a musical instrument? That's not normal. And she thinks I'm strong-willed? You get my drift. So it took me a long time to figure out that those traits that I thought were mine didn't even belong to me. They were hers a whole time because we were so enmeshed I couldn't tell. And so my self-concept was all messed up. It was all over the place. My teachers had no reason to project traits I didn't have onto me. So they didn't. And to this day, this is how people describe me. They they describe me as soft-spoken, studious, shy, cooperative. This is how people describe me. So at least now I have some kind of self-concept that's consistent. So forming an identity means having the freedom to explore, which I did not have. Because if I explored like a natural, normal, developing child or teenager, then I was shamed for it. And it also means having the ability to set boundaries with your parents. Our boundaries were very blurred. I wasn't allowed to have any. Um, I wasn't allowed to have feelings that my mother didn't approve of. I wasn't allowed to have any thoughts about the church that were negative. Or even skeptical or critical or questioning. You know, it was bad. That was Satan. Satan getting a hold of you. When it came to fashion, the way I dressed and the way I did my hair... My mother grew up in the late 50s and early 60s during her teenage and young adult years. So she had very specific ideas about how I should wear my hair, for instance. If you do a Google search and you look up how people did their hair in the late 50s and early 60s, here are the styles that were in. The bouffant. That's when your hair is really big. Uh, Sophia Loren wore the bouffant. Connie Francis. Okay, so it was, you know, big hair. Um, the pixie, which was short. And 
just really short and curly hair like Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, or Eartha Kitt, right? So I grew up in mostly the early 90s when I was in high school. So this was back when Friends was a really popular show. And if you look at the hairstyles in that time, big hair was not in. In the 90s, there was more flat hair. You know, it kind of went from big permed hair in the 80s to more flat, smooth hair in the 90s. And which means I really didn't have to do much with my hair because I have really straight, smooth, fine hair that damages easily. I got my mother's hair, but she really wanted me to keep my hair perm. She wanted me to have big hair. And she was ashamed of me when I didn't have big hair. My father would actually refuse to go out and be seen with me if he thought my hair looked too flat. And and my parents, my mother in particular, would talk to my sister about how, oh, you have the good hair. Not like Angela, she got the bad hair. She has no body. So I wasn't even allowed to have a style of hair that wasn't consistent with a 50s style, which is what my mother really thought was beautiful because that's when she grew up. So she essentially pushed her sense of style from the 50s onto her daughter who was in high school during the 90s. I don't want to tell you what that did to my social life. It was not good. And and fashion, you know, I would go shopping with her and I wasn't allowed to buy my own clothes with without some input from her. And if I really liked something and she didn't, I could push and I could usually buy that thing. But there was no incentive to buy that thing because it would make her really unhappy. She would be so much happier if I would just buy the thing that she thought looked cute on me. So there was a lot of influence in terms of what I wore, in terms of how I wore my hair. I I wasn't allowed to explore when it came to fashion or makeup or hair. I wasn't allowed to wear earrings. I'm I was very much set apart from my peers and it did not help my social life because I wasn't allowed to set those boundaries of personal expression or exploration for myself without there being consequences. Secure attachment is the third thing that children and teenagers really need to form an identity. And as you can probably guess, I was terrified of my mother. I didn't know it at the time. Instead, what I did was I just drew in really close to her and I became her confidant and her friend. And and I listened to her problems. And I sort of, you know, I was the person that helped her through the emotional hard times when she couldn't get along with the other people at church because... That was the safest way to be close to her. It was the only way to be close to her. I couldn't ask her for things. She'd get mad at me. Couldn't have needs or feelings of my own. or That was bad. So I got suffocatingly close to her so that she would be nice to me. It was simple as that. And 
when you're that close to someone, you, you can't differentiate. You can't be an individual. You just become their extension. So in healthy families, children are encouraged to individuate and discover who they are. But in meshed ones, in enmeshed families, children play roles that benefit the parents. Um, And anything that disrupts the children's role is rejected as bad, even if it would be good for the child. So it's kind of like your parents are this, our planet. Your parents are Saturn. And, and you as a child, you're just an asteroid going around Saturn. You don't really have an identity. You're just circling them all the time. Their gravity's pulling you in, and that is your identity. That is who you are. You're in this family system. All of you are in this family system circling around this dysfunctional way of being. And that's it. That's all you can ever grow to be. It might sound like scapegoats have it really bad and like golden children have it made. Like my brother, he was, my older brother was the golden child growing up. They, he was so lauded by my parents as, look, this is our son because he was musical and he could play the cello really beautifully. And they were all proud of him and they took him to lots of activities to grow that gift Whereas for me, they wouldn't do anything like that. But for him, they took him to these extracurricular orchestra activities and competitions. And he played in church. And it looked like they really showered him with support. But here's what happened after he graduated from a music conservatory. He got married. And he went into teaching music. Well, first he got a job with an orchestra. He did that for a year, decided he didn't like it. And then he got a job teaching music. And then he got an offer, two job offers. He was married and he had children at this point. I think he had children. Yeah, he did. He got two job offers at the same time. One being a director for a high school and middle school program that was huge in a county in the East Coast that was well-respected. That would have been the fulfillment of my parents' dreams for him. And the other, working as an administrator two hours away from where my parents lived. And he chose the job as an administrator That was two hours away from where my parents lived. Perfectly within his rights. He's an adult. He's he's a married man with kids. He can do what he wants. If that's what he wants to do, fine. Congratulate him. Be happy for him. That's what normal families would do, right? Not mine. No. Golden child fell from grace. The moment he decided to take that job when the other one was on the table that was close to his parents and that was the fulfillment of everything that they dreamed for him, oh, my parent, my parents were not having it. My dad was going around spreading gossip behind his back, talking about how they were going to be financially strapped and they were going to have all these problems because he'd accepted that job. And my mom didn't talk to him for a while. And then she did. And she sent all these nasty emails. And then he went over there to talk to her. And they 
got into a big knockdown, drag out fight. And their relationship, despite being intact, has never quite been the same. He's no longer the golden child and he never will be. So he fell from grace because he was unwilling to take that role for the rest of his life of being their extension. I'm actually proud of my brother for doing that. I think it's great that he was able to do that. But I had the same problem. I was supposed to be a stay-at-home mom. That was my whole calling in life. But no one ever asked me. They just pushed it on me. Did everything they could to make sure that's how I would end up. So what is the enmeshment doctrine, you ask? It's when boundaries are forbidden if they keep the parent from staying in control. See, enmeshment from the outside really looks like closeness, but it's not. It's about control at the end of the day. The parents feel they have the right to mold the child, to mold the child's feelings, to mold their attitudes, to mold their perceptions, to mold their occupation and their religious belief and and all of that. It's like, yeah, the parents feel like they have the right to completely control what their children become. So, of course, if you push back on that, there are going to be consequences. It's like the enemy of boundaries. And if they can have more of your time, if they can draw you in close, talk with you more on the phone, have you come over, spend time with you, then they're able to maintain more control, which is another reason why the added space between my brother and my parents was such a big deal to them. And shame is used. Shame is normal in these enmeshed families. You know, if you try and grow in a way that means they might not be able to be close with you or they might not be able to control you, they will use shame and they will use guilt and there will be consequences. So... In short, if you grow up in an enmeshed family or a family with the enmeshment doctrine, you might not know who you are for a very long time. And the work of discovering who you are is going to require setting boundaries that your family doesn't like. You will very likely be rejected. You will very likely have your name uh, dragged through the mud. You will very likely have those relationships suffer so that you can individuate. But I can tell you from personal experience is 100% worth it to know who you are. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining me on the Facebook page called Spotlight on Spiritual Abuse. You can message me there or post. And remember to always trust your instincts. Don't let others tell you how to think.